Good evening. Uh, welcome to this LSE public discussion on housing markets and global financial crises. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Schweroth. I'm a senior lecturer in international political economy here at the International Relations Department at London School of Economics. This event is co-sponsored by the International Relations Department and Warwick's Center for Study of Globalization and Regionalization. I'm joined this evening by four distinguished scholars who will give a presentation uh, in the following order. First, uh, Professor Herman Schwartz of the University of Virginia. He has written several books, including Dominions of Debt, Employment Miracles, Crisis Miracles, and Beyond, and his most recent book, Subprime Nation, American Power, Global Capital, and Housing Bubbles, uh, which came out this year. He's also co-editor of the book, uh, The Politics of Housing Booms and Busts, along with Leonard Seabrook. Len Seabrook is, professional, is professor in international political economy in the Department of Politics and International Studies and director of the Center for Study of Globalization and Regionalization at the University of Warwick. His other books include The Social Sources of Financial Power, U.S. Power and International Finance, Everyday Politics of the World Economy, and Global Standards of Market Civilization. And as I said, he co-edited the volume The Politics of Housing Booms and Busts along with Herman Schwartz. To his right is Professor Matthew Watson, Professor in Political Economy at the University of Warwick. Um, Matt has authored over 30 articles in refereed academic journals and two single-authored uh, single monographs with Palgrave, The Foundations of International Political Economy and the Politics of International Capital Mobility. And then finally is Dr. Andre Broom, Lecturer in International Political Economy in the Department of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Birmingham. His research focuses on the change in dynamics of national monetary relations, as well as the comparative politics of economic reform. Dr. Broom has, an, has a, a monograph coming out this year with Paul Grave entitled The Currency of Power, the IMF, and Monetary Reform in Frontier Economies. I'd like to inform you that the events of this evening are recorded, and it is hoped that, that a podcast of the event will be made available online in due course. As with great... Uh, pleasure that I welcome the four speakers and I look forward to an interesting discussion and question and answer session that will follow. The first speaker will be Professor Schwartz. You should really wait to clap until I'm done because maybe I'm not so interesting, you know. Um, so I'd like to thank you guys for coming. This is um, actually my first uh, trip to Britain. I dressed for the hot British summer. <laughs> And um, I'm hoping that it uh, stays hot for the little bit that I'm here. Um, I'm going to talk about two things that are linked that um, people don't usually think about, and that is um, housing markets and global political power, global economic power, and in particular American economic power. And the reason I'm going to talk about it is that in a passive way, America's search for greater economic power in the long 1990s, from uh, 1991 through to 2005, was very tightly connected to the housing market crash that we have now. And the reason is that it was the ability of the American housing finance system to generate extra aggregate demand that gave the American economy above average rates of growth in the 1990s and 2000s. And those above average rates of growth reversed the trends from the 1970s and 1980s where the American economy was losing ground relative to its rich country peer competitors 
and in particular Germany and Japan. So that's the argument. That's all I'm going to talk about pretty much. That's all you really need to take away from this talk. In a passive way, by which I mean nobody planned to use the housing market this way. Um, the fall in global, well, I'll get to those details, but the, the American housing market generated a lot of purchasing power, which allowed American cons consumers to spend a lot of money, and by spending a lot of money, um, they drove the American economy onward. And you can see in this chart one of the reasons why this um, is possible. This is why U.S. mortgages matter. Um, if, we, if we look here, um, mortgages compose almost half of the debt of the non-financial sector in America. And that means that from consumers' point of view, typically it's much, much more than half of their debt. And since I understand that housing prices here are much, much higher than in the U.S., that may not surprise you. Okay. Actually, we have the old slides. Yeah, maybe we can, we can do the switch. Okay. Because yeah, this is going to be too hard to, to see this without. Okay, there we go. All right. Okay, yeah. All right, so now we have the real slides. So this is what I was talking about. We're going to connect these two things that you don't usually think about as being connected, which is money. You can't touch it. I mean, this kind of money you can't touch. The pound notes in your pockets, no big deal. We're talking about money, which is immaterial, which flies around the world, which doesn't seem rooted in anything, and this, which is reassuringly stable, fixed in place, durable, has use value. Okay. So how is it the two things are connected? Finance, American power, finance, housing markets. Um, if we look at the U.S. economy in the 1990s, 2000s, what we see are three things that tell us that there was an increase in American economic power. And the first thing is what I'll just call an absence of constraint. And this is something you guys understand intimately. Um, at a personal level, we can scale it up to a national level. Pretty much everybody has to live within their budget. Okay? And in a macroeconomic sense, what that means is countries have to choose among three things. They can consume, they can invest at home, or they can invest abroad. But because America's good friends in Asia and America's good friends in Europe, and eventually America's good friends in the Gulf, were willing to take their trade surpluses with the U.S. and recycle them back into the U.S. economy as purchases of American public debt, which includes not just treasury bonds, but also mortgage-backed securities generated by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the big government-sponsored entities, the U.S. economy escapes the usual economic constraints in the 1990s. It overconsumed, right? Consumption went up by five percentage points of GDP, which is a lot. Investment went up also by the same five percentage points of GDP. And at the same time that the economy was doing this, America was shipping $7 trillion of investment out of the U.S., so the U.S., like most households that overconsume, um, accumulated foreign debt. The U.S. had to borrow money from overseas to be able to do this, escape from the normal constraints. But the interesting thing about it is that despite creating a net foreign debt of about 25% of U.S. GDP, the U.S. made money doing this. So that's the first reason we know that this was about an increase in U.S. power. The U.S. economy makes money doing this. And it's precisely because the foreign money was going into mortgage-backed securities and treasury debt that this happened. And I'm going to come back to this in a couple minutes. Second thing is that this huge outflow of capital from America, $7 trillion, allowed the U.S., by which I mean the 10% of Americans that own 90% of equities in America, 
and American companies to expand their control over foreign production. The American share of the foreign stock market, Morgan Stanley Capital Index, XUS, rises to 24% um, in these 15 years. And of course, the foreign share also rose, but by a lot less and to a much lower number. American multinational corporations expanded their control of world production. And whether you look at, and of course, at the same time that they were doing that, yes, foreigners were investing in the US, but when you look at the key ratios, the ratio between assets held by American companies investing overseas to foreign companies investing in the US, or whether you look at value added or turnover, what you see is that American firms um, out-accumulated, outsold, um, and outproduced uh, foreign firms in this period. So that's the second thing. The Americans escaped absence, the Americans escaped the normal constraints. Um, they expanded control over production chains. And then the third thing, which I think is the most important one, is that the US economy outgrew its rich country competitors. And you can think about this in market share terms. Um, those of you who work in business, um, of course, know that if you walk into the office and say to the boss, I'd like to have a big bonus this year. I know that we were a little bit below our competitors in terms of um, growth, and so we've lost in market share. Um, but I think I did a good job. Your boss is going to give you whatever the uh, British equivalent of a pink slip is. What is it? Uh, a redundant, uh, the sack. They're going to give you the sack, right? And it's the same thing with power. Um, it doesn't do any good for the people in the state to come forward and say to the president or whoever it is that makes decisions, well, um, the American economy has shrunk relative to its competitors for the 10th straight year in a row. And the interesting thing is that in the 1990s, the American economy grew very, very strongly. And it increased its market share, if you want to think about that, think about it that way. It increased its share of rich country GDP by a bit over four percentage points. That is a big jump, given that the American economy is really big to begin with, given that it's a multi-sector economy. For it to jump that much, it has to perform well across all sectors. It's easy for a small economy like Finland to get lucky. You get a telecommunications firm that has a global market, and your GDP can rise really rapidly above the average. But it's hard for a multi-sectoral economy to do this. Okay? And also, in this period, even though a lot of poor countries are growing very, very rapidly, most uh, significantly China, U.S. share of global GDP is also constant at 20%. So the third indicator of um, rising American power in this period is holding its own in market share terms versus um, the Chinese and um, increasing its market share among the rich countries. Okay, so how did it happen? Here's the dynamic. In the 1990s, there was disinflation, which is not deflation. Disinflation means inflation rates are falling. And Here's the connection to this very important book that you all want to rush out and buy using this deeply discounted flyer right here. <laughs> My publisher made me do that. <laughs> um, you have disinflation. And because you have disinflation, nominal interest rates fall. Nominal, not real. But the important thing about nominal interest rates is that different kinds of housing finance systems have different capacity to translate falling nominal interest rates into more aggregate demand, more consumption. And in the American market, this is very strong. So you guys don't know the American market, but I do. So I buy my first house in 1989, a million dollars, plus or minus, 11% mortgage. By the year 2000, I've lowered that interest rate to 5%. And the banks were happy to let me do that. Okay. 
So what happens in America is there's millions of people like me. They go out, they refinance their mortgages, which is to say they go to a bank and borrow new money to pay back the existing mortgage, and they get a lower interest rate. And with the savings, they go out and they buy, just as I do, the world's biggest flat-screen TV and the 700-series BMW and trips to everywhere but England <laughs> because it's too hot here in the summer. Um, and all this consumption drives the economy, makes for faster growth in the U.S., which, of course, also makes for, for trade deficits, which is what the foreign debt is composed of. Because if you're running a deficit, someone's lending you money to run that deficit. And in this case, I'll just put Asia here. But what did they do with that money? They took that money back to the U.S. and they bought treasury bonds and they bought mortgage-backed securities. And what that did was close the loop back to the housing finance system. American mortgage rates are indexed against the treasury bond. And the flood of Asian money depressed interest rates on the treasury bond by about one percentage point. Percentage point. So from 7%, let's say, down to 6%, which is a big deal for people's mortgage payments. And it's a big incentive to go out and refinance those mortgage payments so they can free up cash for consumption. And it also, because there was more growth, there was more tax revenue. And I'm going to skip a step that you're going to ask about later. What that did was lower the, um, the inflation rate even more and thus lower interest rates even more and thus speed up the economy. So you have these two positive feedback loops operating in the U.S. economy. And the central thing that does this is the housing finance system. It's the institutional structure. And that structure varies from country to country. Not all countries have that, have that institutional structure. Some economies are more like the American, some are less. The ones that are least like the American economy, Austria, Italy, the least like the American housing finance system, Austria, Italy, Germany, Belgium, France, they grew very slowly because disinflation didn't give them that extra bit of aggregate demand. And it's the extra bit of aggregate demand that we care about. Okay, so how does it work? If you have a lot of people who own houses, and a high level of mortgage debt to GDP, there's a lot of demand for refinancing. And then the question is, will banks supply them? So on the supply side, you have to think about whether there's easy refinance of mortgage debt. And the critical issue there is the degree to which banks can securitize debt. And for the technically savvy here, what securitization means is banks can move interest rates, risk, off of their books. And because of that, they're happy to securitize debt. And securitization of debt just means that banks takes mortgages from thousands and thousands of people and sells it to an organization like Fannie Mae, which mushes them together and makes a bond for a pension plan or a mutual fund to buy. Because pension plans and mutual funds want long-dated assets, assets that yield a long-term stream of income. So in America, we have this, and other countries, as I say, have similar things. Lots of people own houses. Lots of people have high levels of mortgage debt. Banks are willing to refinance that debt, and in the 90s, that meant more purchasing power. So we'll call this an American-style housing market. When interest rates are falling, it's great. It gives you a big boost. When interest rates are rising, it sucks the life out of the economy, which is what you see um, starting to happen now. Okay. So in this period, falling interest rates also made housing prices going up. Go up. I give you some numbers here so you have a real sense in an, uh, of what this little graphic means. Um, if, even if you came to the party late in the U.S., 1999, you could have gone to the banks and borrowed home equity, which means borrowed against the increased price of your house, about $70,000 to spend on the TV and the BMW and the vacations and the stainless steel appliances and the granite countertop in the kitchen. If you um, were incumbent like me, 1989, 
$130,000 on average in your hands, potentially, if you could go to the bank and get that money. And a lot of people did. And these are the numbers. And you can see how it ramps up. By the 2000s, the red line, about 10% of people's disposable personal income, DPI, was coming from borrowing against their home equity. So 10% of their spending. That's a lot. But even before that, um, it was um, running at 2 to 5%, which again is a lot. It accounts for the extra growth in the U.S. economy. How much growth? The blue line here is recorded GDP increases. The red line is what GDP would have been in the absence of mortgage equity withdrawal, borrowing against houses. In the 90s, it accounts for the difference. In the 2000s, it accounts for everything. Okay? So houses powered that U.S. economy along. And remember, it powered the U.S. economy along because foreigners were willing to lend money to the U.S. The other side of this mortgage equity withdrawal, the other side of this debt, is foreigners recycling dollars back into the U.S. economy. Foreigners provided between 10 and 20 percent of domestic credit in the U.S. up until about 2004. And from 2004, 2005, 2006, it's running at about 25 percent of credit in the U.S. economy. We thank you, although it's mostly Chinese, not you guys. And what did this mean? Employment gains, green bar is your share of OECD GDP, rich country GDP. Blue bar is um, your share of job gains. America, obviously, more gains proportionately than its share of GDP. Same thing for countries with an American-style housing market. The laggards, fewer employment gains relative to their share of GDP. I'm going to skip these numbers because I'm going to run out of time, but it's just, you know, I, I actually figured out the numbers, so um, you can believe me. I'm not a liar. And then, the, and, then the, and that's because these people have important things to say, too. And then um, the last thing is to say, go back to what I said before, which is that America borrows a lot of money, and the question is, how does it make money by borrowing money? It's certainly possible that a really, really, really smart person, like I pretend to be, can borrow money, consume some of it, invest the rest somewhere else, and end up earning more money on my investments than I owe on my debts. But it's really implausible that every American is systematically smarter than every foreigner. We know that because there's all these people right here that are obviously are very smart because they came to this talk. So how is it America did this? And the answer is that you can't just look at the gross or net debt figures. You have to disaggregate them and see what's going on inside. You have to do a little bit of an autopsy. So when you look at the numbers for 2000 on a percentage basis, what you see is that American investment out into the world was very different from foreign investment, and I should really say lending, into the U.S. So the um, left-hand side is U.S. investment to the world. The right-hand side is world investment into the U.S. Loans, the light blue stuff at the top, washes out. Where's the real difference? The real difference is between the yellow stuff and then the purple and blue stuff. American investment out into the rest of the world was mostly equities, high rate of return, foreign direct investment, which is a company setting up operations, again, relatively high rates of return. Foreign investment into the U.S., mostly debt instruments. What were those debt instruments? Treasury bonds, mortgage-backed securities. Why does this matter for rates of return, for income rather? Because the rates of return are really different. T-bonds were paying 3 4%. Mortgage-backed securities were paying 4 or 5%. Foreign direct investment was earning 13, 14, 15 percent return on assets. Okay? And that's how you can be a quote unquote really smart country, borrow a lot of money, spend some of it importing flat screen TVs and 700 series BMWs, invest the rest of it outside, and make money, more money than you 
have to pay back on your debt. Okay. Well, that's some fascinating stuff from Herman there, but I've been given a slightly different brief by Len uh, for my 10 minutes. I've got 10 minutes to talk about the British situation. My focus will be less on the way in which uh, the mortgage financing system works uh, and more on what the current structure of house prices means. So I want to focus these 10 minutes specifically on the crash period uh, and to try to take some sort of stock of where we are now. I'm going to divide this into a few reflections on the economics uh, of the house price crash, mainly just figures rather than economics though, uh, and a few reflections on the political implications of the situation that we're now in. Let me give you three um, little tempters when it comes to the uh, economic statistics. I think these are best understood comparatively in relation to the previous UK uh, house price crash. This guards against presentism and the danger of thinking that there's something particularly novel uh, or something particularly unusual uh, or unusually big about today's circumstances simply because they're the ones that are most recent and therefore higher up in our memory banks. So the first uh, bit of economic information looks at the uh, bottom uh, of the house price crash. Now during the last uh, house price crash in Britain, during the Thatcher major years between 1988 and 1992, uh, the bottom came 38 months uh, after the top. Now we don't quite know whether we've reached the bottom this time yet. Um, some of the predictions are saying that we are. Certainly, looking at nationwide house price index figures this morning, uh, there's been a 1.1% increase between the first quarter and the second quarter of 2009 in British house prices. But of course, market watchers have that wonderful folk wisdom that says that even dead cats bounce uh, from time to time. So it might possibly be that the bottom of the housing market has not yet been reached. However, if it has, then that's only 16 months from the top to the bottom uh, of the decline phase. So in terms of duration, this house price crash, and I'm not sure why, this house price crash uh, might only last about two-fifths as long as the previous one. No. Uh, I'm afraid you'll just have to listen to me. Uh, I haven't brought any slides uh, along with me. Uh, that will be the slide uh, for the next speaker. It's a very nice slide. So. Uh, <laughs> but I could also see why it confused you trying to match up <laughs> with what was coming out of here. My apologies, I should have uh, coughed and my technophobia uh, immediately upon standing up. Anyway, my second piece uh, of economic uh, information, again nothing to do with what's behind me, uh, links to the severity of the house price fall. If we look at the Thatcher major crash, prices fell from top to bottom by over 24%. Now on this measure, and assuming for a minute that we have already reached the bottom, then this crash does look something like the previous one, if not quite so bad. Because house prices, according to the nationwide uh, index, uh, have fallen top to bottom by just over 20%. Nothing like the 40 to 50% that most commentators were predicting uh, last autumn when the, uh, when the crisis seemed to have its tightest grip on the popular imagination, but nonetheless a significant reversal uh, in the previous trajectory of house price rises. Uh, 
So the severity, not quite as bad this time, uh, albeit the fall is faster because the duration has been much more compressed. My third snippet of economic information uh, links to the susceptibility uh, to negative equity during the crash phase. Now, during the Thatcher major crash, uh, when the crash itself uh, ended uh, and prices bottomed out in 1992, the people who had been dragged into negative equity uh, were uh, primarily those that had taken out mortgages in the preceding four and a half years. Two-thirds of people with 100% loan-to-value mortgages were affected by negative equity by the third quarter of 1992. So that's the degree of susceptibility, four and a half years. Today, obviously, there's something slightly different going on within the mortgage lending market. Uh, the infamous uh, more than 100% loan-to-value uh, mortgages now mean that the uh, negative equity hit can be shorter, sharper, but much more severe. But looking purely on that figure of susceptibility, using the nationwide figures again, as I did this morning, in the general case, nobody who purchased their mortgage more than three years ago should be in negative equity today unless they bought a really super-duperly badly priced mortgage, which, of course, quite a lot of people did. However, on this susceptibility ratio, the knock-on effects are maybe only two-thirds as bad this time as last. So am I trying to paint a rosy picture uh, to tell you that things are not as bad uh, as everyone is saying within the newspapers? Well, I don't think I am. And I think we see the real effects of this house price crash, not economically in Britain, but politically. The political effects, I think, of the current housing market crash look likely to be just as pronounced for the incumbent government this time as they were uh, almost 20 years uh, ago now. Now, it was the combination of house price collapse and ERM crisis that lost the major government uh, the reputation for economic governing competence in the third quarter of 1992. And that was not reclaimed for the Conservatives, according to all the Mori polling data, until the combination of this house price collapse, uh, coupled with the uh, massive amounts of money that were being prepared to bail banks out, put the skids under the Labour government in the first quarter of 2008. Gordon Brown's approval ratings have fallen each quarter that house prices have fallen. It's not something I've done any number crunching on, but there is a freakishly similar rate uh, in these declines. Whenever during the quarter house prices have fallen furthest, Gordon Brown's approval ratings have fallen furthest as well. There's a close parallel between the two. So why then this pronounced political effect of the house price crash in this country? Well, the argument I explore, both in my contribution to the book, the wonderful book on the front, hugely discounted if you pick up one of these flyers. <laughs> my publisher made me say that as well. So my contribution, both to that book and elsewhere, is that this has much to do with the Labour government's reimagination of welfare over the previous ten years. In particular, the role of private home ownership in the new welfare system and the subsequent linking of the reputation for economic governing competence to house price rises. In general, what's happened is a shift to imagining the ideal welfare citizen of the future as one who is fully cognizant of the need to become an asset owner and to become an asset owner as a means of becoming more and more self-sufficient in terms of one's future welfare. 
So capital gains from placing savings in high-earning assets translates into welfare gains when these assets are cashed in in later life. There's an element of necessity to this change as well. It's required by a process of state retreat uh, from uh, pension provision uh, and the scaling back of public pensions in this country. This has an effect upon individuals who become ever more aware of the need to act upon themselves to become a saver. And not only to become a saver for a rainy day, but to save for a particular purpose. The saving purpose becoming to be able to invest in assets, to be able to use those assets for future welfare enhancing expenditures. The image of Paul Langley's investor subject looms large in government policy, I would suggest. And what people are being prepared for is the increasing shift where they're capable of managing that shift to a system of asset-based welfare. For most people in the UK with access to any wealth at all, that access is tied primarily, often overwhelmingly, to the status of private homeowner, to the money that they have saved within their home and the money that they have saved within their home, particularly because of the, current sorry, the recent trajectory of house price increases. Equity release, remember what Herman was saying about that in the American case, equity release from eventual trading down on the housing market has been presented by the Labour government as an adequate substitute for state guarantees of consumption possibilities in later life. But this first requires, of course, trading up in a buoyant housing market to be able to accumulate assets in private home ownership in the first place. And often, for lots of people, repeated trading up uh, during a period in life when one's earnings permit it. Without that sort of trading up, no accumulation of assets in the housing market can take place in the first instance. So an asset-based system of welfare therefore passes through the housing market, in the UK at least, I would argue. But it also passes through individuals learning how to make particular demands of the government in terms of monetary policy. It changes what is popularly understood by successful monetary policy. Individuals become personally responsible themselves for policing the parameters of welfare policy by learning what monetary policies they should support to keep the trajectory of house price increases uh, afloat. So this is about the political reconstitution of the individual then. An asset-based welfare system, if it's to be effective, will give more and more people both a greater value of assets to defend and a greater reason to wish to defend them because of the declining real worth of the state pension. But simply, if individuals have more assets, then they are likely to want to protect those assets politically, as well as to punish parties whose policies do not add up to that sort of protection. It's likely, then, that the incorporation of individuals into an asset-based system of welfare centred on increasing house prices will facilitate the political remaking of individuals as monetary conservatives. In such circumstances, assumptions about governing competence therefore follow assumptions about the strictness of a party's monetary conservatism. One last word in conclusion. The irony for New Labour in this is that it's lost its reputation for monetary conservatism directly through endorsing debt-riddled bank bailout packages precisely to prop up uh, house prices uh, and to prevent them from falling further. So the demand for monetary conservatism was constituted through the housing market, 
that New Labour's defence of the housing market, because of the particular manner in which it was required to defend house prices, has led it to lose that electorally advantageous reputation for governing competence. So has its strategy worked economically in terms of staving off a worse housing market collapse than would otherwise have occurred? Probably, but nobody knows for sure. There isn't, obviously, a counterfactual to provide a definitive answer to that question. But has it worked politically in terms of securing for new labour a continued reputation for economic governing competence? I'm willing to give you a more definitive answer to that one. I think no, and definitely not. House prices have still fallen by 20%, no less, from top to bottom, leaving people to wonder whether they were sold a line being encouraged to use housing market investments as a means of entry to an asset-based system of welfare in the first place. There are some ironies in the political situation, the electoral situation, that the Labour Party now finds itself within. There's a bit of a perversity as well, linking it to the housing market, that it's through its most decisive actions to try to prop up the structure of house prices that it seems to have lost uh, its reputation for governing competence. But of course, all of these political problems are in many senses self-induced. So from my perspective at least, it's difficult to have too much sympathy for them. Thank you. Right uh, the slide, slide here is actually is, uh, part of the last part of the, of the, the um, uh, story here. Um, so, so far we've had the American story, um, and, and that includes also the money, uh, the role of money has really gone from East Asia to America. Uh, and we've had the UK story as well. And the job for myself and Andre is to tell a couple of scary stories. On, on why the American system is not that extreme, uh, why the UK system is in some ways more extreme, and in our cases, why, why, why the Australian system um, is in some ways worse. And Andre will tell you the really horrible story of the New Zealand system. And if we have any New Zealanders here, if you want to weep in public, that's okay. Put <laughs> um, the slide here. So, so this is our system from the from the book. And if uh, I, I don't think anyone's mentioned it, but we have some flyers up here. <laughs> on the front, and also the books if you wanted to, to uh, buy, buy the book. Um, on the system here we have, uh, and what's really going on here is, is an increase in owner-occupation going from the left-hand side to the right-hand side, and in debt from the bottom to the top, and we have these four systems going on here. Um, now what may strike you as a bit odd is that the Danes and the Dutch in the top left-hand corner have a lot of debt. Now certainly, certainly until recently the Dutch were the world beaters in, uh, in debt. Uh, the Danes now have that honour. So if you want to think of a society that is very, very indebted uh, in terms of debt on housing, uh, debt on credit cards and similar, the, the, the Danes actually are, are quite scary. Um, we have over on the right-hand corner at, at the top of Liberals, and that's a Liberal market, and those markets are securitised markets um, in general. Um, now, on the bottom of the graph... Of, 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 uh, we have the state system over here on the bottom left-hand side, and this is the French and the, and the, and the Austrians and the uh, Japanese. And then in the bottom right-hand corner of the systems here, where most, most, most housing does pass through the family in some way. Um, in, in the book, I think we've called it the familial system because in an issue of a journal, we, we included some Eastern Europeans, and the Eastern European author got a bit funny about it being Catholic or not. 
So that's been taken out. Um, okay, so, so debt in terms of GDP here, and this may be of some surprise. Here's, here's the US case, case over here on the far right-hand side. So quite a big increase, average trend in um, 83 in 2006, and the UK case is over here. And as just said, the, the Danes and the Dutch actually beat the Americans by, by, by quite a way. Um, now we can think about what systems during the financial crisis and during the boom period were, were under stress. Um, and if we're looking at, at, the, at the American system here, and we know the American system was under stress, and, and we all heard of subprime now, is that, is that in terms of income, um, um, the terms of housing, housing prices to income here, it's nearly up to 1.7, and this is a period of very high stress for the American case. Now, if we're looking through different systems and looking at the Anglo system, then here's the Anglos. So, and, and you mentioned sort of go, <gasps> That's a, sort of a, shock, shock, a bit of shock and awe here, um, especially if you're an Australian or a New Zealander. So the Americans are, are the sort of grey line going through here. The Brits had a bad experience in the 1990s, um, and that said that as well. But if you're certainly an Australian here in this story, you're, you're feeling a bit annoyed that in terms of housing prices to your income have gone from uh, about 2.4 up to nearly six times uh, income. Um, now for us, and on the panel, we're all in political science, and this is pretty interesting in also, and actually in a political sense. I think I'll, I'll skip this one, and we can come back to it during question time if we need it. And then in terms of horizons and politics, whether they're short-term or long-term horizons and politics, what's, what, what's, what's going on here is fairly interesting. And that's, certainly if you're a politician, you have a short-term incentive in being re-elected. Um, and the kind of changing culture that, that, that um, where, where you try and encourage a society to want to own property more is fairly important there. Banks, of course, want, want to make profit, and they also have a long-term interest. In terms of long-term um, long horizons here, here we have the citizens and homeowners. Now, that, that really does depend on the, the kind of system you have, whether, you, whether in your country you should own property or not, or whether you rent. Um, and the regulators should, should ideally have a long-term interest. And, one, and one, one fairly interesting question during the boom period is how much drift there is between this bottom left-hand corner and the top right-hand corner. So, and then we have some issues of capture. Um, I'll speed along. Um, in the book, uh, I have a case study of the Australian case and the Danish case. This is a, um, a, a neat comparison because the Danes... Um, in terms, in terms of equality across generations is very even. Uh, the, the Australian case is a um, bit nightmarish, not as scary as the New Zealanders, um, in, that, in that there's a, a strong push from those of the older generation to, to, to push for changes in taxation. Now, that's, that, that's going on during, during a period in which change, change in, the, in the financial system is much more transnational and it's being liberalised and access to credit is, is, is uh, fairly good. Now, what happens in the Australian system, and it's not, not dissimilar in New Zealand, is that you end up having a tax system and a financial system that, when combined, leads, leads to a fight inside generations and, and over generations. And the way that I that, that put it in, um, in, um, in the book is, is that, uh, in the Australian case, you have a, a case of parents who eat their young. Not, not to be too dramatic about it. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, sorry. And then to, to the New Zealand case. Uh, <clears throat> okay.
very much. Uh, my story here today about the New Zealand case is really about a political project of economic liberalisation and some of the unexpected consequences of that political project. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the economic policy revolution that New Zealand underwent uh, during the second half of the 1980s and the early 1990s, which has been described as making Thatcherism in the UK look like a slap over the wrist with a wet bus ticket. Uh, it's certainly usually seen as going further, faster, and more pu uh, pure to the theoretical model of neoclassical economics than most other economic liberalisation programmes in OECD economies. <clears throat> okay, so there's two main unexpected consequences of the project of financial liberalisation in New Zealand that I'll very quickly run over here today. Uh, one of the first, sorry, the first is about the, one of the social and economic goals of uh, financial liberalisation with respect to housing finance. And one of the main goals here, which was shared across the political spectrum, um, <clears throat> the liberalisation programme was begun under a centre-left, nominally Labour government, and continued under a centre-right government. Uh, and one of the main goals was to produce an asset-based society in New Zealand. Uh, prior to the mid-1980s, New Zealand had one of the most uh, restrained, restricted uh, systems of housing finance uh, in the OECD. In the late 70s, government mortgages made up 38% of the, of the housing market. Uh, for instance. Now, one of the problems uh, of the effort to produce an asset-based society was that the reforms that were introduced created a split between housing market insiders and housing market outsiders. And this split often went along generational uh, lines, where those who already owned their own houses were able to uh, benefit from more liberal access to credit uh, to move into the investment market for housing. You see a massive increase uh, in the amount of uh, private landlords in New Zealand from the early 90s until the early 2000s. Uh, the housing market outsiders were usually people uh, in low and middle income groups and particularly within a particular age bracket. So overall, uh, the rate of home ownership in New Zealand fell from a peak of 74%, as you can see here, in 1991, right down to 67% in 2006. It's predicted to fall further to 62%. Uh, by 2016. And this occurred at the same time as access to credit uh, was being liberalised. One of the reasons this happened was, uh, as Len mentioned, to do with the taxation system, which, which in New Zealand and Australia enables uh, people who purchase homes to let to negatively gear their properties so that you can uh, reap the capital gains uh, in New Zealand without paying tax most of the time. And if you run your housing uh, investment property at a loss, you can claim back those losses uh, through the tax system, so you can actually reduce the income tax that you pay. In particular, as you'll see here, uh, the decline in the home ownership was especially concentrated in the 25 to 44 age group, uh, where home ownership declined by 44% uh, in 10 years from 1991 to 2001. So that's the first uh, <clears throat> major unexpected consequence of financial liberalisation in New Zealand uh, that I want to mention. The second uh, is more about the effectiveness of macroeconomic policy in a, in a small open economy. And here in the recent boom, so this is much more uh, to do with just the last few years, uh, New Zealand policymakers face what we can think of as a, a monetary catch-22 uh, in Joseph Heller's terms. On the one hand, the central bank in New Zealand, the Reserve Bank uh, of New Zealand, sought to raise interest rates in an attempt to, to try and ease off the property bubble when this was seen to be overheating. The problem here is that uh, during the 
the property bubble of uh, the last 10 years or so, uh, until the last 12 months, most New Zealand mortgage borrowers prefer to have fixed-term interest rates. This is completely uh, the opposite of the case in Australia. So until uh, the last 12 months, around 80% of New Zealand uh, mortgage borrowers had fixed-term interest rates, which created a time lag. So when the central bank raised interest rates, uh, <coughs> people who had mortgages uh, were slow to feel the effect of that and could go on uh, spending as the value of their properties were increasing. The problem here is that the higher interest rates uh, effectively made it more attractive for foreign capital to invest or to lend to New Zealand financial institutions. And this also helped to push up the value of the New Zealand dollar, which hurt what we might think of as the real economy uh, in New Zealand by making uh, imports cheaper and exports uh, more expensive. This effectively helped to fuel consumption across the economy as a whole, uh, as well as inflation, until this began to come down uh, in the last 12 to 18 months, and a worsening trade deficit in the country. So the story here is about the declining effectiveness of uh, an open monetary policy in a country that's undergone um, financial liberalisation. Now, more recently, the impact of the global financial crisis has uh, impeded the impact on monetary policy again, but this time at the other end, where interest rate cuts have not been passed on to the same extent by commercial banks through their interest rates, at least with regard to floating interest rates. And this is currently a matter of debate in the country, uh, and people are, are very concerned, policymakers across the divide, but also the uh, very conservative central bank is concerned that commercial banks aren't passing on these, these rate cuts. It's also constrained, sorry, the global financial crisis has also constrained the scope for further fiscal stimulus in New Zealand. Uh, the last budget that was passed down a couple of months ago was written primarily to satisfy the global credit rating agencies, uh, which are threatening New Zealand with a credit rating downgrade. Um, and as a result of this, the new government that was elected last year was very hesitant to pursue further fiscal stimulus. Uh, and I'll finish up just by saying that this is a story of a small open economy uh, which underwent a very rapid and extensive period of financial liberalisation, and these are some of the negative and social consequences of that process, which were unexpected. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, gentlemen. We now have time for some question and answers. Um, I would remind the audience. I would remind the audience that we preferred if you could ask a question in the form of a question rather than deliver your extensive comments. And I would also ask that you wait for the roving microphone to get to you before you start speaking so the rest of the audience can pick up on what you're saying. And if you would not mind stating your name and where you are from, um, we'll call on you. Uh, this Hello. Uh, my name is Fernando, and I am not from New Zealand, but I am from Spain, where we have a pretty tough situation. And my question is that if we, Spaniards, have to blame European Central Bank for keeping lower interest, or if Americans have to blame Greenspan for their situation, or if there's no guilty and the problem is the economic system, or but that's my question. We're going to take a couple of questions, sorry. This gentleman as well. Hi, Steve Schiffer is at BBC News. I just wonder if the panelists would like to comment on the policy implications of their study. I mean, we're having quite a bit of discussion at the moment, both in the UK and the US, about 
uh, and internationally whether there should be further regulation of lending, mortgage lending, the so-called leaning against the wind, whether there should be, you know, limits, almost in some sense, as people talking about return to the 1970s where there were credit squeezes. Do you think in terms of your analysis of these asset bubbles that any of that would work or would be a good idea, or do you think, you know, these cycles are essentially, uh, boom and bust cycles are kind of inevitable within the general economic cycle? Sure. Um. I can't really talk about the ECB so much, so, but maybe um, the other guys can. But I can certainly talk about um, Greenspan and uh, in a way that takes care of both of these questions. Um, in the U.S., um, the bubble was let's, – let's put it this way. As long as the U.S. was running a trade deficit, the money was going to have to go somewhere. And the question is, where was it, where was it going to go? So in that sense, there was nothing inevitable about a crisis because there were choices about where the money was going to go. So Greenspan lowers interest rates, the American economy booms, trade deficit occurs, and then, and obviously lowering interest rates to get the economy out of a recession in the 2000-2001, that's a choice too, but we'll assume we do that anyway. So then the question is, where does that money go once the trade deficit um, uh, emerges? And here, there's clearly two or three things that really have to be pointed to. One is that the the Chinese, and it is in this period mostly the Chinese, make a decision to recycle the debt as purchases of bonds, make a decision to recycle the trade deficit as debt, which is to say as purchases of bonds, rather than buying goods, whether from America or some other place. So they made a choice which ended up depressing interest rates even more. Okay? And then inside the U.S., the question is now that interest rates are so low, and people are rushing um, to both banks and non-banks to borrow money, what does the government do in regulatory terms? And there also a decision was made not to stop the emergence of the subprime, what is now called the subprime lending um, uh, debt, subprime debt. And um, this was a decision taken for political reasons. So there was a meeting in 2004 where... Um, the bank regulators, the Fed, the Treasury Secretary sat down, and there was some small pressure from inside the Fed to clamp down on subprime lenders, most of whom were not, technically speaking, banks. And the decision was, from the Treasury, well, we don't have legal authority to stop the subprime lenders. They're not really banks. And they did that for political reasons, and I don't want to make this long, so if there's a question about that later on, I'll explain. But in fact, most of those non-banks that were doing the subprime lending were getting their money from regulated banks. So if they had wanted to slow down subprime lending, they could have put the squeeze on the regulated banks, and that would have been end of story. And it would have been end of story before the subprime lending, $1.6 trillion, really took off. Um, let me answer the question, uh, the second question on the policy implications uh, of what I'm talking about uh, and whether this might uh, lead to further restraints on forms of lending. Um, I, I think my answer can almost divide in two between what the UK government has already done uh, and what might have been done uh, if it had chosen uh, a rather different path. I think the big decisions have already been taken in this respect and it seems to me that the biggest decision uh, has been to try to recreate uh, the uh, older system 
uh, in a newer, hopefully more fireproof form. Uh, I think if we look at the content, uh, not the size, which got most of the media attention, but the content of the bank bailout packages, there's some very interesting things that are going on there. Um, these are uh, part nationalizations which do not deserve the name. Uh, there is nothing uh, there that uh, translates uh, ownership, part ownerships, in many cases big part ownerships of private banks into anything that looks like control uh, of the pricing decisions that the banks make uh, in terms of pricing uh, their own credit. So I think that the situation that we're uh, already in in this country is that the Labour government had staked too much uh, on the existing system uh, of house price bubbles uh, and so the priority of the policy response has seemed to be to do whatever is possible to try to recreate in some sense uh, the system that was already there. There will be tinkering around the edges uh, of the regulations. Yes, we will have uh, more and more restrictions on the sorts of uh, mortgages that can be taken out. But let's look at how those will be presented. There are restrictions on the individual. There are restrictions on the individual going to the banks to get uh, particular forms uh, of mortgage lending, particular types of credit. These are not more generalised restrictions uh, on the banks being able to price their credit in their own way. So in many ways, I think the horse has already bolted uh, in the British case. Um, just in terms of the New Zealand case on the question of policy implications, the, as uh, both Mash and Herman have mentioned, I think the real story is about the, the limits of politics uh, and what's politically possible. Uh, during the peak of the boom in New Zealand, the central bank came up with a proposal for a mortgage uh, interest rate levy, which would aim to increase the cost of mortgages without affecting the exchange rate, without attracting more foreign capital into uh, the domestic financial system, and so on and so forth. But this was simply politically un uh, impossible to sell. Uh, so there are, there are solutions there, but I think the policy question has to be very closely related to what's politically possible and how the limits of what's politically possible uh, might be shifted as a result of the, the current crisis. Yeah, okay. Um, um, I think on financial regulation itself, that, that, that the, the idea of having a charge in capital during a boom period is becoming quite popular and it has some political will as well. The question then becomes how you, how you do that in different systems. Um, it would be different in different systems because citizens in those systems will want different things, and so they want, they want property or, or, or they don't want property. Um, now, how that, how that plays out is kind of interesting. As so for example, in Spain, I mean, in, it's often used as a model. Um, and the question could have been if there was a charge on capital in terms of lending to a certain sector, and the sector was housing, would Spain have, have been would, would Spain be in the same kind of trouble it is now in in that area? Um, and those kinds of questions will come out uh, soon, I guess. In general, and I, I would say certainly in the Anglo systems, on, on securitisation is really important to potentially look at that, and I think it will be restarted in a very active way, and it, it will be restarted in a way that was not dissimilar to what was there before. Um, and, the main, and, and the main reason why is politics. It's very, very important to, to, to allow access to credit.
Thank you. I am from Australia and I've lived in New Zealand, so I've scored the double whammy tonight. Uh, my question is about negative gearing to the two speakers who spoke about the Australian market. Uh, currently, there is a major review of taxation underway in Australia by the uh, Secretary to the Federal Treasury. Yeah. Obviously, negative gearing is, uh, is of prime consideration. What would be your advice to the Australian Government in terms of either retaining or changing or abolishing negative gearing in terms of the current housing market? Okay. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. It's me, I guess. The, 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 um, um, I mean, I think that as a, as a tax system, it's in terms of its of, of the idea behind it and what it what it does in the Australian economy and to Australian society. I think it's quite negative, um, not not in the gearing in the social sense. Um, there's been a lot of pressure on, on the idea of trying to change it in the last ten years. Um, it was raised by Mark Latham a few years ago. Um, and he was knocked down on that um, inside five minutes. I think under the current review, it's been treated more seriously. Uh, I think it should be reformed. What then the question is, is the, the question then is, is that if the Australian government does that, then the Australian government is going to punch a, a is, is going to is going to punch a, a property bubble that's already been punched. Um, and if you if you are a tenant in the Australian system and you wanted to to then rent property and you don't have that tax system in place, then you have to rely on the state, and the state can't do it anymore. In the New Zealand case, the issue there would be um, uh, what kind of capital gains tax you have. Um, there's a lot of opposition to having a capital gains tax on housing across the board. Uh, in a poll last year, 80% of, of people were opposed to that. But that figure goes down to 40% who are opposed to capital gains tax when you just have a tax on investment property and exclude owner-occupied housing. So my advice would be, if you're going to do it, uh, it's more you can sell it easier politically if you limit it to a tax on investment property rather than owner-occupied housing. Actually, I want to say one small thing also before we take this question here, which actually two small things. One is that from the point of view of economic theory, there's no justification for having different kinds of taxes. Um, that's, so if we, have a, if we see deviations from the same rate of taxation for different kinds of streams of money, it's usually because someone is messing around for political purposes. Um, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Mm -hmm. um, and the second thing is to remember that in um, the Anglo economies, um, housing is an important part of the pension package. These are, for the most part, not economies where the state is saying to you, um, okay, you were in income de uh, decile 70, up in the top third, while you worked, and therefore we're going to guarantee you a pension that keeps you somewhere near the 70th decile. Second, what are called second-tier pensions. First-tier pension keeps you from starving to death. It's insurance. The second-tier pension is what gives you all the goodies in life. Um, in these Anglo systems, the second-tier pensions, and you know this in Britain, the second-tier pensions are pretty weak. Some people have really great second-tier pensions. That would be me um, as a well-paid professor. Some people have terrible second-tier pensions. Okay, um, And the result is if they don't have that second-tier pension and they retire without a house, they don't have enough money to live on. In the American system, um, people who retire only on the basic pension who don't own a house, typically end up spending around 50% of their pension income on housing, and pretty bad housing. 
So um, that's why there's a lot of political pressure to get people into houses. And when Len says um, people want access to credit, the practical side of that, the thing that's actually motivating people is if you don't have a house when you and own it, when you retire, you're going to be eating dog food. Okay? That's a strong motivation to press for access to credit. Unless you have a pension from the University of Virginia, it sounds well, like. Well, yeah. yes, <laughs> that would be right. Can I just yeah. say something yeah. on uh, Herman's point about getting people into houses? Um, it's an interesting facet of the way that the uh, politics of British house prices has changed over the last two or three years. There was a lot of emphasis on affordability constraints um, within the British housing market by the government, not just for key workers that they wanted to see um, successfully housed and still being able to work uh, in public service um, at the abysmally low wage uh, that us public servants in this country get. Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, thinking about this intergenerationally to make sure that the young, the first-time buyers were not excluded. Now, of course, the biggest constraint to affordability was the actual trajectory of the house price bubble itself. What happens when the bubble bursts um, is the government running around, waving its arms in the air, celebrating that affordability constraints uh, have now receded? Not a bit of it, uh, because the big politics for the government was what was going to happen to all the wealth that was already tied up uh, in the uh, equity uh, from the house price increases. So as soon as the bubble burst, um, then the politics of getting people into houses became secondary to the politics of trying to prop up house prices. My name is Nicholas Tanakis from Planning Aid in Beckham. Um, I'm interested in two things. We're talking about markets and housing, but um, we haven't mentioned the determinant of, of social housing, of housing as a um, need and what pressures that has. And how is that linked in Britain with the situation that the government is um, supposed to be saying in the last two or three weeks of um, buying private housing for social housing, that private housing that's not sellable at the moment, um, and also releasing money from the decent homes budgets to build new social housing. How does that play into this? Um, does it, I mean, can I ask a supplementary on this? Does that affect the price of housing not going as far down as it could because there is, in fact, a shortage? And I know some newspaper writers have pointed that out, that there is a shortage, a need for housing in Britain, even if it's not for private housing that can be afforded by most people. So maybe that scarcity create, does something to the economics. The other thing is relating to the states, and I know that Professor Niall Ferguson in his um, History of Money the chase of money, uh, foreign money in the states for new products and the lifting of redlining of neighborhoods, of housing in neighborhoods that for blacks, for example, or ethnic minorities that would not have been financed because they couldn't be afforded in the past. But with this foreign money, this new market for unsellable otherwise products came in. How did that really, I mean, and then finally, if I may, and the, the other <laughs> organization, um, why didn't the state, um, in, instead of buying 
the banks buy the housing, and that was floated before the election of Obama, President Obama, uh, buy the housing and then let it, which is what I think the British government, in a way, is trying to do with, with this problem here. Can you collect the other one over here as well? Yes. Uh, my name is Václav Scheikler from the LSE. Um, I would like to encourage you to comment a bit on each other because one could portray the first two presentations by Herman Schwartz and, and Seabrook as saying, well, look, we, we, they could have known that this is going wrong. They could have regulated if they wanted to. They could now nationalize if they wanted to. But the other two presentations were saying, well, it's not so easy. Uh, Matt Watson showed these regimes where in almost each one except the status developmentalist, there is another economy that boomed and, and busted. And then the last story about New Zealand and many economies in the world are small open economies, is that there is a real policy dilemma. What should they have done to escape this catch-22? So I'm a bit curious between how you among each other see um, these explanations. Uh, of course, they're all brilliant con uh, contributions. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's, uh, let's start. I'll, I'll say a few things about the American things. I think, Len, you'll do the social sure. housing? Okay. Yeah. Um, the, so this is actually the question. This is the question I put aside when I said there were partisan differences. So American politics for... This is American Politics 101 here. Um, uh, there's, only, there's only really one group in American politics that matters, um, and in, that swings in British terms, and that's white American families with incomes over $100,000. Okay? Um, and so there's a whole politics about moving them. But if you can't be certain that you're going to move them, what do you do? And in the 1990s, um, the Democratic Party's um, problem was to try and win those, um, those voters, and they did that in part by doing what we called welfare reform. But at the same time, they were very conscious about trying to keep black voters and gain Latino voters. And the mechanism for that was the CRA, Community Reinvestment Act, which said banks that used to basically not lend to um, blacks and increasingly Latinos were going to have to at least do a little bit of lending. And those people, because they're poor, they have bad credit. So you had to force the banks to lend to them. Now, the difference between Clinton administration and Bush administration is that under the CRA, the banks largely kept those loans on their books, and that meant that they were relatively cautious about who they lent to, even though these were people with bad credit. They actually looked at the, lend at the borrower, you know, looked into their income. Um, when you get to the Bush administration, you have deregulation and a, and a reversal of that partisan politics. The Bush administration is looking at the landscape and saying, the electoral landscape and saying, well, we've got a big chunk of those white American families, incomes over $100,000, the one-third of white families I talked about. We've got the poor white families. That's the religious South. We just barely had a 50% majority, and actually they were below 50% in 2000. 
We had a slightly more convincing majority in 2004, but that's after the decisions about subprime. So they're looking forward from 2000 and saying, how are we going to make a majority? We're going to peel away a bunch of groups from the Democrats. We're going to peel away a bunch of groups, not by winning 100% of those groups, but just by winning 10 or 15%, just enough to guarantee that we'll be over the 50% mark. So we'll have a really hardline policy supporting Israel, take away another, shift the Jewish vote from being 20% Republican to 35%. We'll be hard on abortion, take another 10 or 15% of urban Catholics away. And then blacks and Latinos, the analysis was, these people are culturally conservative. They're halfway towards being Republicans. They're not social liberals. They're culturally conservative. But the problem is they're economically weak. How do you make them into economic conservatives? How do you peel them away from the Democrats? Well, it's a Thatcherite strategy. If you give them a house, they'll vote Republican. And again, you don't have to give all of them a house. Just get 10%, 15%, and you can lock up a majority forever. That's the strategy. So the foreign money was going to come in, yes. That's what I said before. As long as there was a deficit, there'd be foreign money coming in. The question is, what does that foreign money meet? There have to be assets in the economy for them to buy. So if you're not allowing non-banks or banks to generate subprime mortgages, then they're going to buy something else, and you won't have a subprime crisis. And the thing about the subprime crisis that's really important to keep in mind is that we have to split up the inevitable downturn in the cycle. That was going to happen no matter what from the severity of the crisis. There was going to be a recession after 2006. The Fed, in fact, wanted a recession after 2006. They were afraid of inflation starting up again. What everybody was surprised by, and this also answers the what did we know and when did we know it, um, was the things they didn't know about, which was the connection between credit default swaps and um, the way that connected all different parts of the financial system, right? That was the surprise, and it's those things that make the inevitable recession into a crisis. And there, maybe you can say actors didn't understand what was going on. I think that might be true. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, on social housing, in fact, on, the, on this nice chart we had before, yeah. and I just pointed it very quickly, so it might take too much time. In terms of social housing within this system, we have sort of what's basically going on here is that we have 5%, 10%, uh, 15%, and around, around one-fifth uh, in the system. So, so um, only half of Danes own property, but those Danes who do own property have huge debt. Um, I think on social housing as an issue and as a cause, I am, I'm certainly in favour of it. Uh, and the Anglo system is how it's possible to regenerate that. Certainly from the Australian system, and this is really on, te- and, and it's again on taxation questions, that has been a push in the last 10 years to try, and, to, try and get, to try and encourage investors to invest in trusts that will increase the stock of social housing. You know, now those schemes have failed, really. I mean, they're very, very small. So I don't know what to say other than to be, other than to, um, be a bit disappointed in that system. Um, um, in fact, on CRA, I think you said nothing. Yeah. Well, let me answer um, the question on social housing as well, specifically in relation 
to the way that it was asked about the uh, British government's current policy. Um, it, it's a fascinating issue, uh, buying houses uh, as a means uh, of trying to replenish the stock of social housing. Uh, and I hope it's not just my alter ego as an embittered professional cynic coming out uh, when, when I really wonder uh, as to just how genuine this is. Um, there was no less of a need uh, for social housing and a replenishing of the social housing stock uh, before the uh, house price crash came. Um, but even though there was no less of a need for it, it simply wasn't considered as a matter of priority or urgency uh, within government policy. Uh, this was something that uh, the state could maybe facilitate through financing, but uh, the private sector was going to be relied upon increasingly uh, in partnership uh, with the public sector to make good uh, the uh, deficit in social housing stock. Um, so I think there's, there's more than cynicism to the view that, that, that this uh, might very well be used as some sort of price prop. Um, if the current priority is to make sure that prices don't fall further than they have done, uh, then this would look to be um, quite a nifty way uh, of introducing a price prop. Um, I was struck when looking through the reports this morning um, how the Nationwide uh, summarised its report for June 2009 um, when there's been a, a mild upturn in house prices again. Um, and it says low supply supporting prices for now. Uh, and I wonder whether this uh, is at the heart of the, the government strategy that it's worked out that it's low supply, supply that's supporting prices for now. Uh, because in that respect, if the government comes in as a buyer uh, of uh, empty stock uh, for social housing purposes, uh, then this tightens those supply constraints uh, and that's likely to uh, reinvigorate prices uh, a little bit. Your broader question of whether it could have uh, nationalised or used the money uh, that was prepared for the bank bailouts um, to nationalise, in a sense, um, part of the housing stock. Yes, I think it could have done, but probably not within its own political imaginary. Uh, this is just not what New Labour does. This is not how New Labour has presented itself uh, for the past 15 years. Uh, and I think because of that, you can become trapped um, in your own uh, political positioning. Um, and I don't think that that was ever um, seriously uh, envisaged uh, as an alternative because I don't think that the government's own understanding of its political priorities uh, allowed it to do that. Um, on Natasha's question, I, I should point out you got me and Len the wrong way round. Um, this one's Len. Uh, I'm Matthew. Um, so probably shouldn't have said that and just if you'd have all thought that I was Len... Uh, then I could have gone on about how wonderful Matthew is. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, nobody would have been any the wiser, uh, would they? Um, I, I think you're right to identify um, a little bit of a split in the stories that we were telling, uh, and I, of course, know uh, the British case the best. So let me uh, try to, to flesh out what I was meaning uh, in that respect, uh, and then uh, if the proper Len uh, and Andre want to come in, uh, with any more reflections from, uh, from their specialist area, then of course they're free to do so. I, I think that um, in general um, I um, can maybe be accused of, of trying to uh, overplay uh, the deliberate inflation uh, of the house price bubble um, within uh, Britain uh, over the preceding uh, 10 uh, years. 
Um, this is certainly a criticism that the editors of that wonderful book, only 14.99 for a limited period only, um, have raised uh, about my arguments in the past. Uh, and that's made me clarify exactly what I mean. I, I don't think there was ever a coordinated uh, government strategy uh, to, no, Len's not got the lines up, but to move that uh, bottom orange line uh, up steeply uh, and to inflate the bubble in that respect. But the issue of whether it was already a bubble uh, has been, to use a bubble word, floating around in British politics since at least 2003. Uh, and there were any number of instances uh, in which a decisive intervention uh, could have taken the heat out of the uh, housing market. Uh, the fact that it didn't, and the fact that at every budget, uh, the government, Gordon Brown, was playing the increases in personal wealth occasioned by house price increases for all it was worth, both economically and politically, uh, suggests to me that um, whilst... Uh, there was never a coordinated strategy to inflate the house price bubble. There was certainly no attempt that was made uh, to do anything about it, even when the increases had reached truly bubble proportions. The dithering that was undertaken on affordability issues uh, and the tinkering around the edges of the affordability problem, uh, finding pots of public money uh, to solve affordability problems for certain key workers but not generically, uh, I think all points uh, as well to at the very least uh, benign neglect uh, of the house price trajectory um, so uh, I'm not sure uh, it was ever uh, in a dark room uh, in new labour towers uh, some Machiavellian genius thought let's have a house price bubble uh, but as soon as um, it was clear uh, that one was being inflated uh, there was no systematic attempt to do anything about that even when the opportunities arose. Can I, I, I will give a somewhat serious answer. Is it Natasha? Thank you. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Um, so I've just done what you did. But um, the U.S. is different, right, in this story for a couple reasons. One is um, it, it's a prime mover, right? It is the epicenter of global capital inflows. And at the peak, the U.S. is absorbing 70% of global capital Outflows, 70% of what's being on offer in global capital markets, despite only accounting for about 20% or 25% of world GDP. Um, and that does make it different. And it's, it's different because, it, and it gets that money because the US dollar is different. In a very fundamental way, people have, for whatever reason, um, more faith that the US dollar will survive than other currencies. Um, and so, the, to the extent that there's a tension here, it reflects something that's real. Um, the dynamics are a little bit different in the U.S., and the U.S.'s structural position is different. So it's not just that maybe we disagree. We're talking sometimes about different things. And there's a reason that both in the presentation and a little bit in one of the chapters here, um, I talk about American global power. We don't have chapters on British global power, New Zealand global power, um, because it's not there. Yeah, sorry, I mean, the small point really is that also that, I mean, in these systems, I think for myself and Andre, and um, that, that the, the amount of housing stress placed on the young, younger generation is, uh, in terms of, of, of our own motivation to do this kind of work, is, is because we find it really annoying. <laughs> so, I mean, so if you, so if you, so 
if you're in Sydney or Melbourne now um, and you want to buy a house, then you often go to, to your parents um, and ask for help. Now, that's a, a, that's a bit of a change in the culture as well. So it's on those cultures where, where, where if you don't own a property by the time you're 45, then you're a loser. There's real stress on you trying, trying to access credit, and the change, change in the Australian system and also New Zealand in terms, in terms of housing stress has been enormous. Yeah, and I should say, actually, you don't see that in the U.S. I mean, that was Len's point. Everybody thinks we're in debt up to our eyeballs, but, or at a personal level anyway, um, but relatively speaking, it's not so. Housing prices declined in the 1990s relative to incomes in the U.S., um, and housing prices will, in a year or two, be relatively close to where they were at the beginning of the 1990s. But that, of course, means that they were up... Um, probably 50 or 60% higher than they should have been, and they're going to be down 50 or 60%, and those people who bought in 2003 on are going to have what you guys call negative, equi negative equity. We say they're going to be underwater, and that'll be a problem. Yeah. There's right in front row here. Okay. Uh, hi, I'm LSE, a summer school student here, and I need to write, or write a paper for my home university in Germany about the housing market in the U.S., so how it evolved after the Great Depression, and actually how this, which is really important and really um, interesting, how the secondary mortgage market developed. And so my question to you would be, um, it is the American housing finance system is a very important contribution uh, to the welfare state. So... And I've actually read that it was one um, of the best working systems. So it was a book from th um, 2004, so it can be that it's wrong now. But I wanted you to answer me. So what is the great weaknesses we had in this system, called, which was orig originally called so great? And how would you proceed now? So how could you regulate such a system without restricting it too much and reducing the welfare state too much? Mm -hmm. That would be my question. Didn't we have a slide on um, uh, default rates? Is that on the other one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's have this, the last question. We have a slide on this, actually. Let's take the last question while we find it. Right here, there was or actually three down. Yeah, well, there you go. Thanks. Uh, my name is Josh Ryan Collins from the New Economics Foundation. I just had a question on the... Um, private rented sector, uh, I'm most familiar with the one in the UK obviously, but um, there's been a lot of talk about getting more institutional investment into the private rented sector as a way to making it more attractive as a, as a genuine option for people apart from home ownership. And I just wondered perhaps um, if, if the panel could comment on that and whether there's some other examples, Germany and Austria perhaps being the obvious ones where, um, or Germany certainly where um, there is much stricter regulations in terms of quality on the rented sector, which generally seems to give people an alternative option. Would that be a way of creating greater stability in these, in these housing markets? Okay, so um, it'll be easier if I do this, I think. So we have, we have a slide that in a way answers your question, and I'll give some background. Um, uh, this is really about Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, which are publicly owned corporations, 
Fannie Mae has started in the Great Depression to buy up bad loans from banks so they can start lending again. Sounds a lot like what we are doing now with TARP, et cetera. What Fannie Mae does, um, and then Freddie Mac, is create the securitization process that allows banks to sell mortgages into the credit market so banks don't have interest rate risk and are therefore more willing to, um, to lend money. And what that does is lower interest rates in the mortgage market. Now, the question, as always, is who benefits from this? Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac have a very strict set of underwriting standards. They will not buy loans from banks unless the person taking out the mortgage makes a down payment of 10%, has a credit rating that puts them in the top 60% of the population, um, and uh, ends up with housing-related debt payments, uh, no more than 28% of their income, and total debt payments, no more than 34% of their income. And so two things happen. One is that the default rates on Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loans are pretty low. That's why they're called prime loans. Subprime implies prime, and the prime is Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Um, and to go back to that question that came uh, from this gentleman, that's why subprime borrowers um, are in bad shape. So Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac work to make a very liquid housing market for the top 60% of the American population or top 70% not good for everybody. It helped white middle class families. If you weren't in that category, too bad. So for those families, it's an important part of the welfare system. And to give you the rest of the numbers, roughly a third of Americans retire, 40% of Americans retire, their only income is social security. That's the basic pension. Another third, and they're retiring with, without owning a home, right? Another third is retiring with a home and social security and maybe some small savings, and they're okay. And then there's a top third, House, secondary pension, basic pension. They're in great shape. Okay, so the American welfare state is very highly segmented. So for those Americans in that top 60 or 70 percent, it worked well. It's the rest it didn't work well for. And in terms of the crisis, so why, what happens after 2004, 2005, what you see here is that Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac still work. The default rates, these rates down here on Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loans are still extraordinarily low even in a very deep recession. It's the subprime. And the reason that the default rates are low on Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac uh, mortgages are that these people are prime. They've got credit, right? They've got a good credit history, which means they probably have good personal life skills, being the kind of asset manager that Matthew's talking about. Um, they have enough income so that their housing payments don't put them under, under stress if they lose their job for a little bit, okay? And they've got a stake in their house. So they're not going to walk away. They're, and what's happened here is uh, this orange line is um, income shocks, job loss, long-term job loss, um, and people walking away because they have no stake in the house. Why stay in a house with a $400,000 mortgage on it if it's only worth, say, $250,000 now, and you have no savings anyway, right? Why, why save the bank that extra $150,000? Doesn't make sense. So people have been walking away. I think I've got a question to answer there, so let me be uncharacteristically brief because I already have one eye on my train times. Um, the housing study scholars look at this historically and say that there has already been some sort of uh, rejuvenation in the private rented sector that um, kicked off sometime in the uh, early 1990s uh, and accelerated primarily 
um, when people were beginning to think seriously about housing stock as investments for the future. Um, I don't know, I don't think anybody will know just how robust um, that change will be um, now that we're, we're living in, in rather different financial times. It seems to me that it's uh, dependent upon mindset in two different ways, that there has to be a mindset both of the investors uh, to buy property that they're then going to rent out uh, and for people to want to be uh, in rented property. Um, and it's not automatically clear that both of those mindsets uh, are uh, visible in Britain at the moment and are being uh, facilitated by government policy. A lot of the rejuvenation in the private rented sector came through uh, buy-to-let mortgages, uh, of course. Uh, and this is one area where, uh, to go back to one of the very first questions, um, where a lot of the uh, new regulatory limits uh, are having uh, a, a severe effect, um, that people are finding it much more difficult uh, to get buy-to-let uh, mortgages which could then be prepared uh, for private renting. This isn't particularly surprising. Some of the biggest buy-to-let uh, mortgage providers did not survive um, the credit crunch. Um, so you've got fewer uh, buy-to-let mortgage providers, a, a stricter government interpretation uh, of what standard buy-to-let mortgages should be. Um, now, um, I think at minimum you're looking at a 25% deposit and you're going to be able to have to show uh, that you can get at least 130% of your mortgage repayments in rent, which is pushing those rental prices up, which might actually be a block to the continued rejuvenation of that sector. At the same time, it requires a mindset uh, amongst people, often amongst young people, uh, that renting is not just something you do for a time uh, until you've got enough savings after you've paid back your horrendous student debts uh, to be able to uh, afford a deposit on a house of your own, uh, but it's going to be something more long-term than that. Um, does this fit in? Um, with the conception of an asset-based uh, society and of asset-based systems of welfare. I'm not sure that it does for anything more than the medium term for when uh, those individuals renting are preparing themselves through renting to save to be able to uh, buy a house uh, for themselves. Um, I, I don't think I'm particularly optimistic then, although there's many things that I'm not particularly optimistic about, so this is just one of a long list of those. <laughs> Okay, with that, I think we'll draw to a close. I want to thank the audience for coming this evening, and I want to thank each of our speakers for joining us this evening as well.